We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. Moments ago, I just heard a very encouraging sound. I heard lots of pages of scripture rustling at the turn um, in, the, in the psalm. Um, I would encourage you to keep those Bibles open um, as we walk through Psalm 118 together. I, probably against better judgments, decided that we are going to walk through the entirety of this psalm together as opposed to just focusing in on one or two verses. Um, So as I move through the psalm, it will be helpful for you to have your Bible open. So as I refer to a verse, you can simply uh, glance down and look at it. Um, For time's sake, I won't be able to read every single verse that I'll be pointing to. But the psalm hangs together so beautifully that for one sermon on Psalm 118, I could not split it up. So we're going to walk through the psalm together. In the closing scene of the original Star Wars movie, A New Hope, we see three heroes, Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, and Chewbacca, enter through these massive, large doors of a city palace. And they walk down the center aisle towards Princess Leia, who's there to honor them for their heroism and their victory in battle. On each side of the aisle is lined with thousands of people from the rebellion honoring these unlikely heroes. Luke Skywalker, a farm boy who was adopted by his aunt and uncle, Han Solo, a smuggler, and Chewbacca, a Wookiee, a made-up figure, um, which I never thought I'd be saying Wookiee from the uh, the pulpit of Park Street Church, but here we are. But many times throughout their journey, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the movie, they're pressed. The enemy is bearing down on them. But every time that they are feeling pressed and constrained and death looks intimate, the force often comes to their rescue. When they were trapped, when the enemy pressed in, when they had nowhere to go, the force made a way out when there did not seem to be a way. And our psalm today concludes with a grand celebration of a king coming into city gates, returning victorious in battle. Many times throughout this battle, we see that he comes close to death. His enemies press in on him, yet the Lord delivers him. The Lord makes a way when a way didn't seem possible. This psalm is rich, and we could use it for a whole sermon series. The great reformer Martin Luther called Psalm 118 my own blessed psalm as he felt like it paralleled his life in ministry. The psalm is broken up into three major sections that we will look at. And first, I'm titling an enduring love. The second, a divine deliverance. And the third, a celebration of salvation. Psalm 118 is the last psalm in a subsection of psalms known as the Egyptian Hallel Psalms or the Egyptian praise psalms, beginning in Psalm 113. These six psalms are interwoven together by their language and themes. 
They are the Egyptian Hallel Psalms because they recall and echo the deliverance of God's people from the Egyptians, the Exodus. The Hallel Psalms came to be sung during the Passover celebration, perhaps around the time of the rebuilding of the temple in Ezra chapter 6. So in Matthew 26, when Jesus institutes the Lord's table, which we will eat at soon together, Verse 30 says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. Now, if they kept with tradition and they sang these Egyptian Hallel Psalms before they left, then this would have been the last song on our Savior's lips before the cross. Jesus quotes this in the three synoptic Gospels. It's recorded, and all four Gospels writers use this psalm as a context to understand the messianic hope that was present on Palm Sunday. This psalm moves between different voices. There's some call and response, the voice of a community, the voice of this individual king. We'll see in verses 1 through 4 a priestly call to the community to worship. In verses 5 through 18, we'll see the voice of a king. And in verses 19 through 29, we'll see the voice of a community. We'll also see some call and response that concludes in celebration. So let's jump into our first section of Psalm 118, an enduring love. This psalm begins and ends with God's hesed love. Hesed doesn't have a perfect translation in English, and there's much wrapped up into the idea of this word hesed that is translated love. It's used 130 times throughout the whole Psalter to communicate God's covenantal love, his faithfulness, his kindness, his grace, his mercy. Love is the very nature of who God is. As we read in 1 John 4:16 that God is love. His love is the very reason we exist, and hopefully the very reason that we are here today for worship. God's love is the occasion for everything that is going to happen in this psalm. It ends and begins with God's steadfast and enduring love. One of the moments in my life that I will never forget is the birth of my children. I'll never forget the depth of love that I had for each of them the moment they came into this world. It's the love I still have for them today, although they do like to try that love. <laughs> but to try to sum up my love for them with one word seems insufficient. What I feel for them day in and day out is so much greater than anything that I could express. And how much deeper is God's hesed love for us? His love runs deeper and is vastly more wide than any love that I could reflect to my own children and difficult to capture in one word. But this is the type of love that drives everything that happens in this psalm. In verse 1, we see that there's a priestly call to the community to respond to this type of love with thanksgiving a call to proclaim God's steadfast and enduring love. This call of thanksgiving is addressed to all of Israel, all of God's people, the priests of Israel, their ministers, and to anyone who fears the Lord. This call is all-encompassing. And if you know the steadfast love of God of Israel, 
the proper response is one of thanksgiving. The proper response is one of proclamation. The proper response is worship. When we begin with a thankful heart for the love of God, it prepares us for the hardships and difficulties that we encounter in this life. Because we are reminded that in this life there is nothing greater than Him and His love. As Paul writes in Romans, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love reminds us that we don't fight our battles alone. God is with us, as we see in the next section of our psalm, a divine deliverance. This next section, verses 5 through 18, move from the voice of a community to the voice of an individual. This individual would have been a member within the congregation, and now he is narrating a demonstration of God's steadfast love. This individual would appear to be a king, a Davidic-like figure, as we see by the language that is used through the rest of the psalm. And in verse 5, we see a similarity here between what is happening here and what happened in the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, says, The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Here in verse 5, this king, like the Israelites in the Exodus, is in distress. He calls out to the Lord for help. And the idea behind the word translated uh, distress here is that this king is feeling surrounded. He's feeling pressed. He's feeling constrained by his enemies. And so he looked to the only person he, knows, he knew to look to. He calls out to God, and God responds. The text says that God had set him free. And the idea here behind setting free is that God made room for him doesn't mean that God necessarily delivered him right out of the hands of what he was going through, but God made room for him to know his love. So the idea here is that he is feeling constricted, but God has made room. When he felt like he could not breathe, God made room for him to breathe. And then again, down in verses 10 through 13, we see the king is surrounded, but once again calls on the Lord. We see this refrain, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off, used over and over again. But the better translation is, in the name of the Lord, I pushed them back. And here, too, we see a picture of the Exodus. When the Israelites were up against the Red Sea, they had nowhere to go as they saw uh, Pharaoh's army coming down towards them. And the people began to panic. But the Lord came to their rescue. The Lord held the Egyptians back. And then he parted the Red Sea that they could pass through. And we see that this deliverance in verse 14 leads to praise. The Lord's help results in this king's salvation and the salvation of a nation. That God has delivered his people and the fitting response is praise in the form of song. A song of deliverance. 
Verse 14 and 15, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. Now I have to get on my family ministry uh, soapbox here for a second. But let us not too quickly glance over what it means that the songs were in the tents of the righteous. The tents of the righteous are the homes of the righteous. The people of Israel were on the move. They were a pilgrimaging people, waiting, getting, trying to get to the promised land. These tents are the homes of the families who belong to Israel. And the faithfulness of God was to be celebrated in their homes. Glad songs of salvation, songs of God's deliverance should fill our homes as well. It is important for us to recount the faithfulness of God in our families. The Exodus was the defining moment in Israel's history of deliverance. And as Christians, our defining moments of deliverance is the cross of Jesus Christ. Songs of the cross should fill our homes as Christians. We should recount the stories of God's faithfulness to our kids and to one another. But of course, this doesn't only apply to families, but all those who profess Jesus as Lord. We are part of God's redemptive story in this world. Part of God's story of redemption and salvation. What is your story of God's deliverance? What is your song of God's deliverance? Have you shared this with your children? Have you shared this with your roommates? Have you shared this with your neighbors? As God's delivered people, we are to sing. We are to share stories of God's deliverance. And worshipful response and thankful response to the God who has delivered us, the God who has given us salvation. In verse 16, we see an exclamation of the power of God when it says over, again, repetition again, the right hand of the Lord. And the right hand of the Lord is a sign of his power and his strength to deliver his people, to, over, to conquer any earthly enemy. And these lines are taken right from Exodus 15. It is the song that Moses sang after the Israelites came through the Red Sea. However, when we look at verses 17 and 18, we see that this victory did not come without struggle. This king was taken near death. And it says that the Lord had disciplined him, but not in the sense that the Lord was punishing him, but that the Lord was preparing him for the ministry that he was calling him to. The same way an athlete would discipline their body to prepare them so they may grow stronger. The king is disciplined here in order to grow. But after around 1,500 years after the Exodus, God would send another king. A king greater than Moses. A king greater than this king who would be pressed not only by his enemies, but by the people he came to save. He was given opportunity to skip his greatest trial by the evil one. Yet this king would not put his trust in comfort and power. His refuge was the Lord. He was pushed hard in the garden. He knew the suffering he would endure, not only physical suffering, but being separated from his father. And this king would not come near death, this king would die. But the Lord would help him. 
the Lord would raise him from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, thereby defeating death and the evil one and delivering us, his people, from the hand of the enemy, not by might, but by the power of shedding his own blood. And this king still fights for us today through the person and work of his Holy Spirit. And so in the psalm, having been victorious over his enemies, this king now rides into Jerusalem, into a victorious procession. In our last section, we see a celebration of God's salvation. As the king comes up to the gates, being victorious in battle, he calls out to the gatekeepers to open the gates of righteousness. Now, these gates are righteous because behind them is God's kingdom. Behind these gates are God's people and God's place, living in God's presence under God's rule and blessing. And a response comes in verse 20 from the gatekeepers with the requirement for entry into these righteous gates. Only the righteous shall enter the gates of the Lord. Only those who are part of God's covenant community may enter through these gates, not because they have a righteousness of their own, but because they have a righteousness that comes from God, because of their faith in Him. And as this victorious, righteous king comes into the gates, the people shout, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now why this king would have been rejected, we don't know, but if he represents the Davidic-like figure, which I believe he does, we know that David was not the popular pick to be king. But yet God chose him. And as this victorious, righteous king comes into the gates, the people honor and hail him. Now, most houses in Israel at this time were constructed of mud bricks. But commercially or publicly used buildings would have been constructed with a stone foundation and the structure would have been built out of stone. This type of building would have been what the psalmist had in mind. That what God is building here on this rejected cornerstone is going to be large. Builders would have looked through piles of stone to find the next best fitting stone. So a stone that was rejected for one purpose may be perfect for another purpose. And one of the most essential stones in constructing a stone building would have been the cornerstone because it would have needed to have been a near perfect 90 degree angle because by this stone they would align the walls of the building. And God took a stone that the builders rejected and said on this stone or this stone will be my cornerstone, the stone on which I build my kingdom. In each of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus record, uh, they record Jesus telling the parable of the wicked tenants, which we heard read earlier. Now this parable is largely about Israel's pattern of rejecting the prophets that God had sent to them, these prophets were to call the people to repentance, to prepare their heart for the Lord's coming and the coming of God's kingdom. And of course, this rejection culminates in the rejection of God himself and the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus tells the chief priests and the Pharisees towards the end of, at the end of the parable that the kingdom would be taken away from them. 
But just before he says that, he quotes this verse. And if he would have quoted this to them in Hebrew, there's an interesting play on words that is happening. The word for stone in Hebrew is eben, and the word for son is ben. And so Jesus quoting this psalm to the Pharisees could be understood this way, that the son that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The rejected stone is the rejected son, which would also be fitting of the meaning of this parable. And the rejected son is to be the cornerstone on our, in our lives, the one on which we construct a line ourselves. And sometimes there are other stones in our world that we think might be a better fit. We can chase after our own comfort, power, security, selfishness. Yet the way of the cross is an invitation to die to ourselves, to be selfless, to empty ourselves, and to serve. But fixing our eyes on Jesus as our cornerstone. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, this is not something that we are called to do on our own. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are being built together as the Lord's church. And when we align our lives according to the cornerstone, our lives together will be in harmony. But when we look away from the cornerstone, when we look inward, the walls of our church become shaky. And we start to move out of alignment with one another. We'll pass the peace, or we already passed the peace in our service, and if we want to live at peace with one another, then we need to look to the cornerstone and not to our own preferences. And as we move down to verse 23, following the king's entrance, there is an acclamation of praise from his people. Their deliverance, their salvation is from the Lord, and it is marvelous in their eyes. And if we hold the psalm of deliverance up against the backdrop of the Exodus, you can imagine how marvelous a sight it was when the Israelites had their back against the Red Sea and God parted the sea so that they could pass through. Yet even more marvelous in our eyes today is that our King Jesus, God in the flesh, accomplish our, our deliverance once and for all by dying on a cross and then resurrecting from the grave. And when we consider the cross and we consider the resurrection of Christ, we too should proclaim that it is marvelous in our eyes. And as we come to the Lord's table in a few moments, let us take it not without time, not without creating space to marvel at the Lord's plan for our deliverance and salvation. Skipping down to verse 26, there's a proclamation of the messianic hope. It says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This rejected king is God returning to his people 
And this was the messianic hope of Israel. A little earlier in Matthew 21 is one of the accounts of Palm Sunday. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem, the people shout, Hosanna! Hosanna, God save us! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The messianic hope for them was that Jesus would free them from the hands of the Roman, that he would ride into Jerusalem and sit on the throne of his father David forever. But what they did not realize is that King Jesus would not just be pushed near death as the king in the psalm. He would die in order to deliver his church and deliver his people. He had another enemy to defeat first, the evil one. But they didn't understand that the Messiah had to die. It didn't make sense to them, which is why a little later... That same crowd were the ones who were chanting, crucify him. They could not understand how the Messiah would die. Which is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, For the word of cross is folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. And Jesus a little after his ride into Jerusalem, puts this verse in its truest context in Matthew 23, where he laments for Jerusalem. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, and, and stones those who are sent to it. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, 26 is fulfilled in part at Jesus' first coming as he rides into Jerusalem to deliver his people, not from the Romans, but from their sin. And this psalm will be fulfilled in full at his second coming when he will reconcile all things to himself and make all things new. And we will all proclaim, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming again, and it will be more marvelous in our eyes than we can think or imagine. Some of the stories that grip us most in our world are the ones where the fate of the world rests on the shoulders of a hero. If the hero fails, then death and destruction for the entire world is certain. The people they represent place all their hope, all their faith in the hero, and their sense of hope goes as the hero goes. Oftentimes, these heroes are unlikely or even discarded. And this is true of our current culture's most popular stories. In Harry Potter, the fate of the Hogwarts rests on the shoulders of Harry, standing up to Lord Voldemort. And while Harry Potter remains alive, the hope of the whole wizarding world does as well. Or in Stranger Things, the small group of friends relied on El to protect them and their world from Vecna, whose mission it was to bring his world of death, the upside down, into their world. And the hope of the rebellion lied on the shoulders of Luke Skywalker, defeating Darth Vader, and as Luke went, so did the hope of the rebellion. These stories grip us because they point at some measure to the gospel, a story that is written so deep in our hearts. And we know that if we look within, we are not enough. 
We don't identify with these heroes, but we identify with the people who need saving. We need the steadfast love of God and the person of Jesus Christ. We need a hope that is bigger than ourselves. We need to place our hope in the one who never fails. But we, like the Israelites, sometimes forget God's love when we are pressed, when we are stressed, when we are anxious, when we are uncertain. When we feel attacked and surrounded on every side by the enemy, it is, evil to, it is easy to panic and look, out, look for a way apart from God. But brothers and sisters in Christ, let us not forget our own song of deliverance, that we serve a victorious king, and let us take refuge in his steadfast and enduring love. As Jesus was about to endure his greatest trial, the cross, Psalm 118.29, was the last verse on his lips. God's hesed love was on his lips. It was his strength. It was his song of deliverance. And may it be ours as well as we await for the glorious return of Jesus and we will all cry out together, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Park Street Church, let us give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Hesed love, a love that will never leave us or forsake us, a love that is perfect. God, forgive us when we rely on other things, when we take refuge in other things, when we are feeling pressed, when we are feeling stressed. Lord, help us to rely on you, to take refuge in you, in your love. Lord, help us to find room in you when we feel like we have no room to breathe. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came and you have delivered us. You have given us a song of deliverance to sing. May we proclaim it in our families and to our neighbors and to our co-workers. God, we look forward to your glorious return. We look forward to the day where we will say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Until this time, O oh Lord, strengthen our hearts, and may we continue to look for your return and be strengthened, Lord, by your hesed love, which is shown and displayed to us in our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.